Welcome everyone to the Pantheon. I'm your host, Ray. Because I am solo, I am going to re-review top to bottom uh, Batman v Superman in about 12 minutes. So spoiler alert, if you have not seen the movie, you may want to jump ahead about uh, into like maybe the 20 minute mark on this podcast because I will re- I'm going to uh, basically break down what happened in the movie and kind of explain some of the symbolic things that were missed. So here's Batman v Superman, top to bottom. Here is how it kind of played out. Bruce Wayne, he's in the twilight of his years. Um, he's played Batman, would say, for 20 years, roughly, give or take. And so he's at the end, or near the end of his of his run. Let's say he's a little bitter or jaded uh, would be an understatement. But this film is peppered with flashbacks of, of him becoming Batman, his origins, of how he witnessed his parents' uh, getting killed, uh, him finding the Batcave and seeing the bats for the first time. It's all very visual. And Tom Snyder does a really amazing job of really bringing the visual element to it. He's taking actual comic book uh, board like illustrations um, from various artists and really giving you the actual like blend of historic comic book imagery from the real artist. Uh, and putting it to the screens. So whether it's Frank Miller or uh, Bob Bob Kane or some of the original artists that has worked on, worked on the actual comic over the course of the last 60, 70 years, Snyder tried to make this as faithful to its his adapted sources as possible. Now in this film, there is two uh, references to Joker, and that's really the only parlay we have that connects this film to the Suicide Squad. Um, the first one is, and again, you see this in the actual trailer, is we see Robin's uh, suit in a, kind of a glass museum case. Um, it is implied that Robin is killed uh, and that it, he died by the Joker's hand because it is spray-painted on the suit. Ha, 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 joke's on you. And there's a scene where Bruce Wayne and uh, Clark Kent who actually meet for the very first time at a gala uh, party that uh, Lex Luthor's holding. And uh, Bruce Wayne has, in his di- one of his dialogues, says that he has seen his fair share of clowns in Gotham, giving reference again um, to his history with the Joker in some capacity. We get another flashback. And Bruce is witnessing of the Man of Steel fight that took place two years ago in Metropolis. And the result of the catastrophe, which is kind of like a post 9 11 destruction. Um, we see at this point uh, that Wayne Manor uh, has been burnt to the ground and is completely uninhabitable. So both Alfred and Faithful Butler are now working and living off uh, in the uh, boathouse, which is probably somewhere along the Wayne Manor estate. Now, both Lex Luthor and Batman are on the same page in terms of how they view Superman as an actual threat to humanity as a whole. So they are both seeking out kryptonite as a means to, uh, you know, to control or to eliminate this potential threat because it is the only substance that, that we are aware of that can hurt him or kill him should the need arise. And again, after witnessing what happened in Man of Steel, both are justified. Now, with Lex, he believes that there are others like Superman who are metahumans. And he actually has proof. His personal R&D department has, has dug up 
actual evidence of other beings on Earth with uh, metahuman powers. And kind of as a subplot story, uh, Luther has allied himself, or tried to ally himself, with Senator Finch, played by Holly Hunter, uh, who is holding these Senate hearings to determine what is Superman's place among humanity. Is he a friend or foe? How is someone who is omnipotent be held accountable for his actions, especially at the level of destruction that took place in Metropolis uh, two years ago? Though Senator Finch herself is unaware of uh, Luther's knowledge, acknowledgement of metahumans, um, her focus is strictly on what she sees, and that is just um, the last son of Krypton, and that she's trying to get him to answer for what he's done, good or bad. So the public at large can feel assured that there is some sort of control and order in the government and in the United States in regards to this alien living among us. So I'm going to get into now the nightmares because this is where it really starts to get interesting. Um, Bruce Wayne falls asleep at, at his desk and has a vision or a dream of trying to find kryptonite, which is what his goal is. Uh, but he gets captured by worshippers of Superman. At the beginning of his dream, uh, we see an, a really panoramic shot of a scorched earth with a symbol of the Omega symbol uh, in the sand. And now the Omega symbol is related to a actual um, character in the, sorry, in the DC universe, which I will get into uh, momentarily. And, and all of these, uh, they're called parademons. They're like human-shaped crow-like creatures. And so it's like a murder of crows, like a flock of crows, descend down along with the worshippers and, you know, basically capture um, Batman. And that's the dream sequence. It's a really cool uh, look what uh, Snyder is able to pull off here. The parademons do exist in the DC universe in relation to the Omega symbol, which is kind of interesting because this is a dream sequence, which is a foreshadowing of what's to come. And it's how interest, it's interesting how Snyder was able to subtly sneak this in uh, in the consciousness in, of, uh, of Batman while progressing this particular story. Because dreams are said to have a bit of a reality or truth to them, but mixed with red herrings. So, it, so it's really interesting what you can take as factual Easter eggs from this movie or from this dream sequence and in, imply that into the up and coming uh, Justice League movie. Now, at the end of the dream sequence, um, Batman has a vision. If this is part of the dream or if this is an actual hallucination or, or not, because um, at the end of this dream, a huge white flash of light appears, and in the middle of the light is uh, a red figure, and we believe it's the flash. Uh, from the future, because he's a little bit more older. And it doesn't look like Ezra Miller, who plays the Flash in, the mo in his up-and-coming movie, but a much older version of him. And he says, uh, he says four lines to uh, Bruce, and they're like fragments of English. And I'm going to go into what each line is, and what possibly is meant in his speech that he yells to Bruce in this sort of like hallucination slash dream slash reality because one of the powers of the flash is that he can travel through time so snyder has said himself that he he wants to give you the audience the ability to say is this true is this not true you decide uh most likely it is some kind of connection because again the the dream 
of the uh, the parademons and the omega symbol are legitimate symbols of of a particular character, and the film leads into this with other symbols leading into this to this character that I'm going to reveal again momentarily. So the first thing he says, Lois is the key. So that can mean one of two things, in my opinion. It, it can mean, uh, well, Lois is the one who finds the kryptonite spear, which is used to end uh, Doomsday. Also, it can, it can also mean that she's the one who ultimately bridges the gap between Superman and Batman for to being allies and not kill each other uh, at the most critical junction in their battle. She is the key, if you will, that joins these two on this and puts them on the same path. So the next thing he says, uh, came too soon. Now this one can mean, um, this one's kind of strange because the only takeaway I have from this is that I'm thinking that he's referring to himself as he presents himself to Bruce, that he came too soon because he's presenting himself to him and revealing that there are metahumans. So he's never met the Flash, Aquaman, or Cyborg and has no knowledge of their existence until he gets until he opens the file and sees what the R and D department has on metahumans, and this is his first time being introduced to the Flash. What he might have met of saying I'm, came too soon. Again, it's broken. It's it's fragmented uh, dialogue, so it's not clear and concise. That's that's the only takeaway I got was he's revealed their existence well ahead of what uh, Bruce would have found out. Uh, much later on. And the third line was, you were right about him. Now this one is a little tricky because it could either mean he was right about Superman being evil, because there is an evil Superman if you follow the whole resurrection uh, storyline. Or I think what it really refers to is his, it could be about Lex Luthor because he really is an uh, evil mastermind. He is extremely manipulative and he has access now to a lot of information and knowledge to which we know nothing about currently. And uh, his actions with Doomsday and uh, what's to come, and he gives hints to that uh, when Batman meets uh, Lex Luthor at the prison and he says the line, God is dead, referring to Superman, and now that he is coming to reap the rewards, uh, so, so to speak, there is no one now there to stop him. Uh, Lex, he had a portrait of angels and demons, where the angels from above, well, he flipped the portrait upside down, so one of the last few images we see is the demons coming from the sky, similar to that of like the parademons, and attacking uh, those on earth. So it's uh, one of the last images that we see that really does leave a, a, a very strong lasting impression of what's to come. And it's very, very frightening. Now, I just gave one of the big reveals to, at the ending, too, is that God is dead. Yes, uh, Doomsday, the villain that is created by Lex Luthor, who is part of General Zod and his own DNA, killed Superman at the end of the movie. Now, using images from actual comic book illustrations of the fist breaking through the crest of the S or the chest plate of Superman, you get this, the exact same look uh, in the film. Uh, the bone dagger-like fist of Doomsday you know, impales Superman as they both die. Uh, in the comic books and in the cartoon, I mean, they both punch each other, or they, it, and it really does live up to that 
um, visceral of the fist crashing through the, the, the chest plate. So you have that uh, impaling uh, by, by a punch, uh, and, and that ultimately kills Superman because he's carrying that kryptonite spear, as I mentioned before, and they are both weakened by that, and ultimately they are both dead. So uh, that is one of the, the visual, that's one of the really cool visual scenes. I'm going to go back in regards to the R&D department who has researched metahumans. They had a follow-on Wonder Woman. Uh, there was a photo of her taking place in 1918 during World War I. Uh, we see her uh, and um, Steve Trevor and six other gentlemen um, in a photo. In her, and she's in full suit and armor. The date is very prevalent. So, and that, too, is a very good springboard into up-and-coming Wonder Woman movie, which is kind of her origin story. Of course, we see the video files of the other characters. Um, we, we see the Flash uh, saving a man at the convenience store and seeing how fast he moves. Um, we see Aquaman in the, in the Tongo trenches. A video file from Star Labs, and you have uh, Dr. Stone giving a documented account of him repairing life to, I believe, it's believed to be his son, Victor, with a, with a mother box, which is something that, again, refers to the dark side. It's a device that dark side or uh, these uh, elder gods would use, and it's very powerful. As a result, it creates Cyborg, um, who is the person we see on the bulletin board behind him, who at this point appears to be only a fraction of a man, but we hear him screaming as he's being recreated and, and recombined with the mother box technology. Which is, uh, it's kind of cool. And we have Darkseid. Now, Darkseid is, is from the planet Apocalypse, and he is almost godlike uh, in his strength and power and, uh, and a ruler of many, many minions, hence the parademons. So, so, so one of the things that happened at the end of the movie... An empty casket is used in the funeral of Superman in Washington, where they create a monument in his name uh, for saving the world, whereas Clark's actual body is getting buried uh, back home in Smallville. And as Lois Lane and uh, Martha Kent are at that Clark's body as it gets buried, Diana, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, and Bruce Wayne are kind of a little further back. And Bruce tells Diana that uh, they need to go and start finding the other metahumans. Of course, D uh, Diana asks why. And he says that he's got a feeling that they are going to be needed. Based on the dream and the flash foretelling to Bruce what was going to be taking place of getting the team started. Because Flash gave the indication that a fight will be coming, or a war. Uh, so it is the formation of the League, and the common enemy will be... Uh, the coming of Darkseid and his Apocalypse minions. So that will end our quick summary of the movie. But now that we're definitely getting close to the 20-minute mark, let's get into our the feature of the week, and that's going to be 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's from a production company called Bad Robot, which is owned by J.J. Abrams, who did the original film of Cloverfield, uh, which was initially found archive footage, which became the movie. Uh, this is an actual account. Uh, in real time, if you will, of this particular set of characters. What is that? Howard. Stay calm. We're okay. What was that? Quiet. 
That sounds like helicopters. Could be military, but not ours. How can you tell? 14 years in the Navy. What's happening up there? My guess, those flashes that kicked us all off, that was phase one. Take out your opponent's population centers with big hits all at once, fast, and then for round two, ground sweeps. The satellite log showed an increase in coded traffic recently, possibly extraterrestrial signals. I bet what we just heard were airborne patrols sent to hunt down the remaining signs of life. Like us. Uh, now, I'm not going to give away the ending or what really happens in this film or not, but this is more in, along the lines of a, a psychological thriller and taking in perception of what is real, what's going on. Charles John Goodman as a survivalist, uh, he, his job before this whole incident happened was he worked on satellites. Uh, he's believed to be ex-Navy, so he has military applications and knowledge and um, being a survivalist, he has a certain uh, way he conducts himself and he's very accurate. Uh, the, uh, and the protagonist of this movie is Michelle, uh, played by uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And uh, just a little, give you a bit of a trivia knowledge, if you will. Uh, she was the only actress who was thought about and was cast for this role. There was no one else that was planned to play this character of uh, Michelle. So she was the initial um, actor or actress, if you will. Now watching this movie, I don't see what necessarily is the appeal of her being the one chosen for this. Uh, I think she did a very formidable job in her portrayal of Michelle and showing you the different depths and levels of the character and the various layers to her. Uh, but there's nothing too important to signify this her being the ideal candidate for the role. She did do this role, uh, I think, justice uh, on many on many fronts. In the first, I guess, five, six minutes of the movie, there's no dialogue. It's just her uh, breaking up with her boyfriend. Uh, she leaves the ring, the engagement ring down. Uh, her boyfriend, Ben, who is voiced by, believe it or not, um, Bradley Cooper, who just does the phone calling voice. Um, of, and it's very brief. She leaves town, she gets into, into this car crash. And just before the car crash, we hear on the news, if those who are listening very carefully, that the city is experiencing these very um, power fluctuations. And then that is when her car gets hit and she goes for a tumble. And she wakes up uh, in this uh, cinder block cell underground in this uh, bunker that John Goodman's character um, built uh, for this impending... Um, doomsday end of the world scenario uh, and his character believes that the incident uh, that we're told and when she wakes up to is that uh, there's either a, an attack a nuclear fallout or a chemical fallout or we're having an alien invasion but in any event uh, they are stuck in this shelter for at least one two maybe three or four years depending on the nature of what's outside um, he believes there is a chemical or air contaminant. He has pigs that are outside that are just mutilated. And that was his sign that the the outside world is right now uh, not safe to be inhabited. And, and in the trailer that we see, uh, 
she looks out and she sees proof of what is out there in two sets. One with the pigs, and then one was some someone or something that was out there to help convince her not to go out. And that's what we see in the trailer. Uh, and what we see in the still shots and uh, what's out there. Uh, it's not so much like Twilight Zone or uh, M. Night. It's a very straightforward story. Um, it's just that she wakes up and she's just told, this, this, this is the situation right now and you can't leave. And there's no reference to prove otherwise. So, And you have this other guy who's in the shelter. His name is Emmett. Uh, who helped actually? Who helped build this uh, survivalist shelter with Howard, who played by um, John Goodman, uh, who is the survivalist, and they built this shelter. And because of the incident, Emmett wanted to come in uh, and and to save his own skin because he also believed Howard's theory that the end of the world or an attack has taken place. And Emmett is the only other proof uh, from Howard to Michelle's character that they are safe underground. One of the things that make this, makes this film such an intriguing piece is that Howard is, is filled with rage. It's almost volatile, and it's under the surface of his skin. That's how, and he's easily set off. He's untrustworthy towards Michelle because she wants to escape. He can be charming, but he's very menacing. His character is the antithesis of um, violence and just fear. Facially and his expression is the antithesis of being someone who is uh, unrelenting and uh, of one who should be mindful and fearful of. Uh, and there's a scene where both Emmett and Michelle have got to a point now that they're planning to make an escape, but to do so, they have to incapacitate um, Howard by, uh, gaining his, by getting his gun and trying to prevent him from um, stopping them. And one of the things that they're in this little bunker to keep the time to go by is that they have these little board games and these different books and magazines to try to read and in videos that he's kept over the years to entertain them during their stay. And one scene is where I'm going to play right now is, well, I think it's, it's not, I don't know if it's Pictionary. It's a game where you uh, pick up a card and then you have to, and he says a line, and you have to guess the movie or the character or what, it's where the source is from. And so he's playing with Emmett first. So Emmett has to guess what he's saying. But as he's saying it, and, and, with this, and keeping in mind, because you can't see this, he has a certain intensity about him. Whether he's being sincere or not, he's a natural, formidable intensity about him. And as he's carrying on with this game, the line between him being dominant and, and smart and the line of, of him being playing this game, it gets blurry, and Emmett's character uh, breaks slightly. I'm always watching. Always. Um... God. I'd go wherever I want. I, I'm, I mean, uh, I don't know. I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. Um. I know what you're up to. 
Look, Howard, uh, I, I don't know what, what you're getting at. I see you when you're uh, sleeping. You're I, I know, know what now. you're doing. And I'm always watching. I don't know. Always I'm watching. Know. I'm always watching. Santa Claus. There's Santa Claus. Yeah, Michelle, that's great. Except that what's up, it's turn. Sorry, I just got a little excited. Yeah, well, I'm keeping that point. Uh, Goodman does an amazing job in bringing uh, an intensity to this. I mean, I've always known him from his series on Roseanne, being a very friendly guy, a very funny person. Um, just, or, or not say funny, but a very personable person, a very homely person. This is such a character who is so removed from um, his character of Dan in Roseanne. It is just uh, menacing. He's the archetypal uh, villain in this film, but he's not. I mean, there is shades of humanity in his intentions in this film. His honesty in this film is very cut and dry, uh, but because of his demeanor and the way he acts, uh, and and then his tolerance level, which is very very thin, um, there are things that really play uh, to the balance of this movie, and it really becomes just a psychological roller coaster ride, and just trying to escape. And the levels of which Michelle has to endure and go through in order to make that happen. The bunker scene, I think, is just really is is where the actual um, drama sets into. And then when when you get that release, when you get when you get that what's out there reveal, um, you are pleasantly rewarded uh, in its in its in a certain in a, in a very certain light. Um, I'm a, the one thing I'm, I'm going to have to say grateful for, you're not going to have this nauseating camera shaking and movement, which drove me mental while watching Cloverfield. This is, this is not a documentary um, freehand camera thing, which is, uh, I have to say, is one of the best uh, things in comparison to Cloverfield itself. And the threshold of one's ability to survive and adapt in this really disturbing and just surreal environment it's in and that is in the heart of it the the part of what of what makes this a really interesting drama and character analysis uh and and of course your hero is a female who uh is just um at odds with herself and odds and at odds with the person around her and has to go beyond herself to get to the next level for psychological attention not knowing What's going to happen next? And realistically, you don't know what is going to happen next. There's no foreshadowing in this. You can't see how this will twist and turn. And that's the beauty of this. Whereas with most films, you kind of can guess or predict what's going to happen uh, one or two steps ahead. With this movie, you're in it uh, to the end. And there's no way of determining what's true, what's not true what's going on, and how um, this will all play out. And that's the beauty of it. You're really in a bottleneck situation where you're literally with this person, Michelle's character, um, all the way through in this journey. And that doesn't really happen too much in film. I think with film, you know, as a viewer, you're because you're outside, you can see, foresee things, guess, and, and try to feel your way out. This one was very contained. So much so that it really parlays in the fact that um, that because she's in a confined area, so are we. We're boxed in with her, and we're not seeing um, what's past uh, 
her own visual element too. So I think that's what makes it such an intriguing film. And uh, it's rare that a film can make you experience what the uh, hero in this film is experiencing and not letting you see above all of that if you're part of the expression. And, uh, and that's what makes it work so well. So uh, that's 10 Chlorophyll Lane. I'm giving this movie three and a half stars out of five. Uh, it does give, give you the psychological um, willy-nilly, if you will. And uh, you do get rewarded at the end. Uh, and it's not exactly what you think is going to happen. But I think you do get some uh, reward for sitting through all this. It's all subjective. But it's definitely worth the journey, uh, even if you just see it for the one time. Well, that ends our show. I'm Ray. We'll talk to you later.